Welcome to episode 87 of F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. Uh, This week's guest is YouTube sensation Thomas Heaton. Thomas joined us on the podcast to talk about his journey over on YouTube. Uh, We also talked a lot about shooting icons, which I feel like is always a fun and juicy topic. Um, We talked about social media, and we talked a lot about location copying and impacts on those locations. Over on Patreon this week, for anyone who is subscribed at the $5 a month or higher level, Thomas and I recorded 22 minutes of extra footage. Thomas answered a billion questions posed to him on our Facebook group, including his absolute favorite landscape photography experiences, his displeasure with his uh, current Canon setup, and what he is considering as uh, an alternative to that, Um, staying inspired to shoot locally, staying motivated during bad weather, and his perspective running a business as a full-time photographer. Lots of good stuff over on Patreon. Well, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about one of our sponsors, Jason Matias, founder of The Art of Selling Art. You might remember him from episode 79, where we discussed the business of art, marketing, art fairs, and my personal favorite, Finding Your Voice. Jason's platform, The Art of Selling Art, is a Facebook group, a community, and a subscription platform for for photographers and artists who are serious about earning an income from their art. Jason is a super personal and down-to-earth guy. He takes the time to answer your questions, and he tells it to you straight, something that I personally really appreciate. The Art of Selling Art is evolving from a yearly subscription platform to a lifetime membership. Right now, it costs $180 a year to join, but the doors close on December 21st, 2018, and when they reopen, the platform will be $495 for for lifetime access. F-Stop Collaborate and Listen listeners who sign up before the doors close will be grandfathered into the new structure and included in Jason's beta programs for a coaching group beta and a Finding Your Voice mastermind beta. Check it out. I subscribed and joined the community over on Facebook. It has been super useful to have people to bounce ideas off of, and the information that Jason Jason shares with members is invaluable. You can find the Art of Selling Art in Facebook groups and the platform at www.jasonmatias.com. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters and podcast producers, who include Jason Matias, Charlotte Gibb, Jeff Peterson, Chris Rice, Eric Stensland, Jack Curran, and Michael Howard. These amazing folks contribute at the $20 a month level and higher over on our Patreon page. If you want to share the word about your services to the landscape photography community, you too can support the podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash f-stop and listen. Let's get going. Awesome. Well, Thomas Heaton, man, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. You are more than welcome. That's awesome. I um, 
I have to I have to um, admit something. I'm a little bit ashamed to admit it, but uh, I'm not a YouTube kind of guy. I don't know what it is. Like I think because I like to multitask and video is really hard to multitask and actually give it justice. Um, so I haven't actually watched any of your videos until this morning. And I was like, wow. And I got to say, dude, it actually motivated me to subscribe and actually allow notifications on my phone. So <laughs> Wow. So now I've got one extra subscriber. That's good. That's all yeah, dude. Yeah, I really, I really liked what you had to say in a lot of your um, more recent uh, episodes that I was able to watch this morning while I ate breakfast. So uh, keep up the great work. Well, good. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed them. And yeah, I totally get the whole wanting to multitask thing. Sometimes I end up watching YouTube videos and I don't actually watch. I just listen. So I treat them more like a podcast. So I, yeah. uh, I totally get that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And um, but honestly, like you do, you put in so many like clever little like pop pop up things and things like that, that if you weren't watching, you wouldn't get get the joke or things like that. So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, like the recent one I watched you do, uh, you you were talking about how you didn't like the the Canon EOS R. Yes. And uh, and you, <laughs> you held up a camera that you were going to be testing and then you uh you blurted out, which I thought was, I don't know. Oh, I yeah. laughed at it. For- I, I just did it on purpose because <laughs> I knew it would drive people crazy. Because it's kind, of, it's kind of a joke. See, I, my channel is um, in no way gear oriented. Orientated. Yes, it's not, it's not very gear heavy. So I always talk about the photography and, and very rarely do I actually mention anything about tech. Um, but I knew uh, that as soon as I started to question buying a new camera and God forbid, am I actually switch from Canon that it was just so many people are going to have their opinion and, you know, people get really irate about gear. It's quite funny. Um, it is so, hilarious. Yeah, it is. Like, people are really passionate, which is fine. You know, I get it ish sometimes. I mean, but you know, like people would genuinely be offended if I, if I was to buy, for example, a Sony, like I honestly think people would just be mad at me. And, and it's funny that they see it more as a brand thing than just a tool. Um, so, yeah, I thought it would just be funny to um, just blur out the camera because people it just drives people crazy because they just want to know what gear I'm using. Um, and I don't want it all to be about the gear. <laughs> I um, It's so funny when people ask me, uh, like, well, what kind of camera should I get? What brand? I'm like, basically... If you buy any camera that was made in the last five to six years, you're probably going to be able to take some pretty great photos with it. I mean, honestly. Yeah, no, I agree. There's not really a bad camera out there, which um, makes it makes what I'm the next phase of my uh, photography quite difficult because I do want a new camera, but I think the technology has pretty much reached its peak. So the differences you're going to see are marginal, um, but there are differences, um, and that's why I'm considering switching. But um, yeah, cool. yeah I, I just wanted to see the reaction when I said that I might switch. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It is funny. Um, I, I think like 20 years ago, people would be like, eh, like people wouldn't care. But now it's different. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to ask you, like, why, why did you pick uh, YouTube as a platform to do the majority of your um of your work like what is it about that medium or that platform that drew you in and why do you still use it uh well i started off on youtube looking for uh, mountain biking videos 
So <laughs> I wanted to learn how to uh, how to do various jumps and tricks on my mountain bike. And I started watching the tutorial videos and found them quite interesting, but then I was quite bored. So I ended up watching all of the amazing mountain biking videos shot by the likes of Red Bull and various other brands where the mountain bikers do crazy flips and jumps and go through the woodlands and they're all very cinematic and and they're more inspirational than educational I thought oh, this is really good and when after watching those videos I couldn't wait to go out on my bike and then one morning or one evening should I say I had planned to go out and shoot some landscapes in the, the following morning and it was you know it was raining it was cold outside and the thought of having to get up at 5am I just didn't want to go so I was losing motivation so I thought oh I wonder if there's a nice inspirational landscape photography video on YouTube that's going to motivate me to get up and go out and shoot um, and I looked and there wasn't really I mean there was there's a few a couple of guys out there doing it like um, Ben Horn and Nick Carver doing a fantastic job with their uh, large format film cameras but not not a great deal out there. It's not that I could find. So I thought, oh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to make one. <laughs> I'll see if I can make one with my iPhone. Um, and it just got a really good response because people could see more than just the image. You know, people could see the story behind it, why it was taken, how it was taken, and the events leading up to the image. Generally, you know, a big hike or something like that. Um, and I think people really related to this. Um, and because the images within my videos were getting more views than the images on Flickr and Facebook, it just seemed, you know, the natural thing to do is to keep making them. Uh, and then it's incredibly enjoyable to make the videos as well. So there is that. Although it is tricky, you have to juggle several balls in the air at one time. But it's, you know, it's still good fun. Yeah. So what what was the learning curve like in terms of, you know, going from, you know, taking a couple of photos or videos with your iPhone to actually producing them to look really good and have transitions and pop-ups and things like that? Like how, how much time did it take you to really kind of dial in your process? Yeah, it takes a, it took a long while. I mean, if you watch my early videos, they're really bad <laughs> and the audio is terrible <laughs> and video is terrible but the, fundamentally the the content is the same it's the story and it's the image so nothing's changed from that perspective but technically a lot's changed and yeah it's just you know you, you earn a bit of money on ad revenue or whatever it means you can reinvest you know I, I went from an iphone 6 to a gopro and then from a gopro to a small canon g7x and then so on and so forth um and it's it is it's just that it's looking at what how you can improve your video you know the first thing was to buy a different camera then maybe buy a drone or a slider or different lenses um so yeah it's it is a, a steep learning curve um and generally you learn by watching other people's content and thinking wow that looks really good um maybe how did he do that and then you look at what kit they're using and then you go out and buy that kit and see how you can apply it to your videos the trick is to keep everything really small lightweight and portable um which is yeah. the difficulty yeah especially if you're already taking all of your other camera gear into the field <laughs> yeah exactly so it's, it's everything on top of that um sometimes right. though i just go out with one video camera just a small canon and just shoot with that and it's it's quite nice there's nothing worse than going out with a drone a slider a camera <laughs> a couple of gopros uh, right, it gets carrying, quite like, overwhelming <laughs> carrying a bunch of pelican cases with you everywhere <laughs> yeah yeah it's not ideal <laughs> right 
Um, well, what do you, what would you say is kind of been, uh, your, your, uh, secret to growing your audience? I think the, the exact wording that I got from somebody, um, I think it was David Johnston on our Facebook, uh, page for the podcast. He asked, how did he grow his YouTube channel to the size of a small country? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I wish I knew, if I knew the answer, I'd, I'd be a rich man. Um, uh, I don't know. It's, I suppose the main thing, the most important thing is consistency. So uh-huh. uploading regularly, which I didn't do for the first couple of years, I was very ad hoc. But now I upload twice a week consistently. And it's about not letting anything go to your head. You know, I see it so many times where people get, you know, 50,000 followers or they hit the magic 100,000 followers and you start to see them change, uh, Mm. become a bit more, have a bit more of an ego and, you know, believe that they're you know, the greatest thing on the internet. Um, and it, it's not, not particularly, I don't say that with photographers, but you know, like, you know what it's like, you get some 20 year old kid who gets a million followers and, oh, it's not nice to watch. So I think it's really important that to stay grounded and to never assume that you're the best, you know, I don't think I'm the best photographer out there by a long shot. Um, see so many amazing work by other photographers but i suppose the the way i have growth is just by being very relatable and being very honest and being very down to earth Um, i don't script anything um i just whatever happens happens and i try and document it and make a video yeah i think that's a i think that's great advice even for for anyone even just posting on any social media platform i feel like uh, just be yourself, you know, like, um, you, people are either going to like who you are or they're not. And I feel like if you try to be something inauthentic, people are going to see through that. Yeah. I think some people start a bit, uh, start a channel for a business. So they'll start a YouTube channel as a business. Um, and then they'll start to try and make videos on topics that are popular at that time. And they'll start to make content and mimic the content of other successful creators and you can see right through it uh, i guess that's one of the things with me is it was never ever a business like it is now but that's just the way it's progressed um but mm-hmm. maybe for the first two years it was just a hobby um i didn't even know that i could monetize my channel um for the first year or so <laughs> um, i always just assumed that the ads on youtube were just put there by youtube so shows how inexperienced I was, but I think my naivety actually did me a few favors. Yeah. So if you're, if you're, uh, producing, uh, two a week, I'm curious, like between recording and planning and post-production, like about how much time does it take you to actually get one of these videos up onto YouTube? Oh, it depends. You know, sometimes I don't plan anything. That's (laughs) maybe that's a, a bad thing, but you know, the only planning is as far as I'm going to go out and shoot tomorrow morning or whenever. So uh, on a good day, um, I could get up for a sunrise shoot, have beautiful light, get a nice image, maybe two nice images, uh, shoot some video, uh, be home for breakfast, have breakfast, edit the video and upload it that afternoon. So, you know, I can easily turn out a video in half a day if I get good light and the worst are when I go on a trip and get bad light and, you know, have difficulty telling the story because I'm sort of hopping from one location to the other. Um, mm-hmm. And then I have to edit the video and throw in voiceover to make it all work. Those, those are the worst. They can take hours and hours to put together. But a good shoot on a good day with good light, I can easily knock out a video 
from leaving the house to uploading to YouTube in a day. No problem. Uh, one of the things when I was watching some of your videos, like um, I was trying to picture myself in, in the location and in the conditions that you were in. And, and I, it just, I just kept thinking like, how is he not uh, totally like distracted by what's happening in the landscape and able to actually speak to his audience? Like I, I have a hard enough time controlling my uh, excitement and enthusiasm and getting the shot verse and then to put on top of that trying to record a video of that at the same time feels like super overwhelming to me like how do you how do you kind of balance those two things at the same time yeah i don't know i'm very selective about what i photograph because i know that it's gonna take uh, a long time to build the footage around that chosen subject or chosen image um usually i'll just um i get the photograph first so I won't even set the camera up. I'll get my camera out, frame the shot, take an image, make sure that I'm happy and that it's all going to work. And then I'll work backwards and start filming. So, okay. yeah, I mean, that's usually when I'm when the light's changing really quickly. That's what I'll do. So I'll set the camera up, take the image, and then I'll set my video camera up and I'll talk about the image I've just taken. Or I'll talk about the image I am about to take, having already taken a test shot. Um, So, And then I work backwards from there. Then once I've got the image in the can and I've got the initial video footage of me talking about the image, the composition, why I'm framing, why I'm shooting it, take the exposure and then say goodbye, um, then I'll essentially work backwards so i'll film lots of b-roll of the area i'll film b-roll of the back of my camera i will pack away my camera and then set it all back up (laughs) and so essentially working backwards because i never used to do it this way but um quite often i would find myself trying to film everything and get 15 minutes worth of footage before I'd even taken a photograph and then the light would go and it would all be for nothing. So that didn't work. And I soon learned that, okay, I need a different approach here. So it's usually sunrise that work that way because, you know, the things change so quickly. So get the image image is always the priority and then just work backwards. Um, And yeah, it works quite well. But that's, that's not always, I'd say that's most of the time. Sometimes I just, you know, run and gun with the video camera, just, plonking it down on the floor and hectically talking to the camera while setting up my uh, Canon or whatever. So yeah, it does vary and it's not always easy, but you soon get used to it. That's cool. So I'm assuming you're using like a lav mic or something like that so that it's... No, I used to, but that was way too much hassle. So no, I just have a a little mini shotgun on top of my camera Okay. and yeah, it works great. As long as I'm relatively close to the camera, it works fine. Nice. Cool. Well, one of the, uh, I, 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 I had a really good time watching uh, your video that you shot um, after you got back from Mesa Arch and Canyonlands uh, from the, uh, the Moab conference. And, uh, oh, yeah. and I really, really enjoyed um, what you had to say about uh, Mesa Arch and that location. And I think we've all seen kind of that phenomenon happen at some of these more popular locations. And I just wanted to spend some time uh, talking about that. So I guess if I could summarize kind of what you noticed was that uh, um, 
Well, I, I don't know. Maybe you can maybe tell tell the uh, listeners what you noticed, and then we can talk about what happened there at the arch. Yeah, well, this yeah. is a, a problem that I've seen across most national parks in the States is that they're so popular now that uh, overcrowding is a real issue. Um, so, yeah, at Mesa Arch, I, I saw that I was um, scheduled to take a small group out to Mesa Arch, and it's, I was so torn because i really wanted to shoot mesa arch i've never been i've seen photographs of it and i thought oh yeah this could be really cool and i thought oh it's gonna be so busy like really busy <laughs> so i actually changed the schedule and said we need to leave an hour earlier if we're to get a good position so i think sunrise was oh i can't remember now maybe seven thirty something like that and we rocked up to mesa arch at about four thirty or 5 so really really early it's freezing cold pitch black and I don't know if you've ever been to Mesa Arch, but it's tiny. Yeah. It's so small. It's like, it's about 30 feet across. Yeah. I mean, something like I've that. I've actually never been for the same reasons that you describe as to why you were like, uh, I don't want to go. Yeah. So I, I, I thought it would be like this huge arch, hundreds of feet across, and that there would be room for maybe 30 photographers if we all step back and get in it, you know, um, but it isn't like, you must you you have to shoot the arch with like a super wide sixteen mil lens or something, and it's it's so small. And from where your tripod is set, you can almost, if you're tall enough, lean out and touch the arch. It's that small. It's really really small. So we turned up and, and there was already four or five photographers there, tripods in place. And I was like, oh my god, and that's it. No one else can get in. So I think there's maybe room for one or two people on the edges. Um, but I was like, okay, this is fine. Um, let's not worry about it. Let's see what else there is to shoot. Um, if anybody does want to wait for the arch, there is space there and the space there, but sunrise isn't for a couple of hours. So you'll have to keep warm. Um, and a couple of people waited uh, for the arch shot and a few people wandered off. And as the dawn light started to increase, I could see that there was just a blanket of cloud. You know, the sky was just full of cloud. And I thought, oh, what a shame. Nobody's going to be able to get the Mesa Arch shot because you need direct sunlight in order to get the glow. Right. And that's what it's all about because it's such an icon as well, you know. I mean, you could take a nice shot of the arch without the sunlight, but it's going to be very flat and quite dull. And when you're inundated by images of the arch with direct sunlight and maybe some snow or something, you know, you're always going to be left thinking that your image isn't quite as good as it could have been because, you know, there's thousands and thousands of images out there online so i i was quite glad that there was cloud cover because i thought less people would hang around the arch and it would give people the opportunity to go and find other compositions but what i found was just you know more and more people were turning up it was crazy like just like a line of marching ants constantly people coming down the footpath down the footpath down the footpath and every single one of them went straight to the arch and set up their tripods and cameras and they all huddled around the arch. And it was really, um, it, it wasn't a very friendly atmosphere either. Cause I remember a specific memory. I was, I just stood back watching. Right. Um, I, I was with a group. So I was, I was, it was, it wasn't really a workshop, but it kind of was, I was there to mentor or help the guys. So I'm walking around checking on everybody, make sure they're all good and they're finding subjects. And I actually, lost a couple of members of my group in the scrum i couldn't i didn't know who was who because i'd only seen i'd only seen them in the dark i loved how you called so, it a rugby scrum <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, that's what it was. It was insane. It was insane. Like tripods were tangled up, you know, crazy, crazy, crazy people. People would grab a camera handheld and sort of lean in front of everyone with their arms stretched out and get a handheld shot. So people had this camera kind of in their face. Um, so so I, I lost a couple of members. Yeah, it was it was a really bad experience. So I I was just stood there watching, just watching the lights, watching the clouds, watching the crowds gather. I wasn't shooting myself, and uh, people. It wasn't dark, but it was you know it was just starting to get light. So there was a bit, kind of blue hour, and people were walking down with their head torches on, um, so they could see and not trip <laughs> over and not you know, fall to their death. Right. <laughs> And then this guy started shouting at everybody, telling everyone to turn their headlamps off, but in a really sort of, I don't know, it's just in a really aggressive, know, aggressive manner. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was like, it wasn't like, Oh, excuse me. Do you mind if we just turn headlights off? I'm, I'm trying to take a shot here. It was demanding. Everybody was controlling the whole group. Everybody headlights off. Excuse me, excuse me, headlights off! Like really <laughs> condescending. I was like, "Oh, who is this guy?" Um, but what what I didn't understand was it wasn't dark and there was no sky, so there was nobody was doing any night sky photography. So I don't understand what, what this guy's problem was. He was just really just one of those photographers. So yeah, it wasn't a nice atmosphere at all. Um, and the funny thing is, me and a couple of guys from my group just walked around, maybe. F- 50 meters or 100 meters away from the arch and you get really nice photographs looking down the canyon um yeah so, like a woman women women washer arch and all that yeah exactly and yeah there's all these people just stood there refusing to move even though i don't know if they didn't know that there wasn't going to be a glow or if they just hoped people would clear off i, I, don't, I don't know i couldn't quite understand it but like for the whole experience just made me question why why anybody would want to wait there and try and get that shot. And you know, for me, it's so far from what photography is about. Um, yeah. It just, I didn't quite understand it. I think it's a shame. I mean, I don't, don't get me wrong. I think people should photograph iconic images. I think that they are really good for learning technical skills and they're great for getting nice images for your portfolio, but I'm sure you know yourself, it soon gets, you know a bit unfulfilling and a bit boring and a bit empty when you know you're left when you turn up at a location and it's quite obvious that's where you put your tripod and there's the shot personally i prefer to go and find compositions and seek out different images which is where the fun is it's definitely not uh it doesn't stimulate your artistic uh part of your brain that's for sure no it, it doesn't at all so i expected the crowds at mesa to sort of just scatter and rotate and revolve around but they didn't everybody stayed put um which meant more and more people joined the back of the scrum and uh <laughs> and uh, the funny thing is i just couldn't see why because there was no light um so i thought it was a real shame yeah i i, I guess i i, I want to label that tunnel vision you know like i feel like people go to these locations and they have this expectation in their mind about what it is they're going to get a photo of and then like they just get super locked in in their mind that that's the only thing that they can shoot and then nothing else matters and then it's uh it's just a it's a weird it's a weird behavior that uh i don't know like i think i've even found myself doing it a few times over the years like you 
I don't know, especially if you if it's taken you some time and effort to get to that location and you've kind of been anticipating the experience or anticipating the photo that you're trying to achieve and then like nothing else matters but to get that shot and it's just a really strange uh psychological human behavior that uh i it, like you like you noticed i mean it definitely doesn't bring out the best in people <laughs> no it's really interesting you say that because i actually think that mentality is a good thing in landscape photography you know the patience and really waiting to get a shot and and waiting for you know hours sometimes days coming back to the same spot time and time again um but that usually you would associate that kind of behavior with solitude and uh, being out there by yourself. But to yes. apply that to something as over photographed as Mesa Arch, yeah, I think I think you're right though. I think people, most people there are probably tourists and have traveled a long way. So there's a certain element of stubbornness about it, um, and I, I just thought it was a shame. Um, and I would, I, it would have been completely different if it was blue skies and that glow was going to happen because there would have been a chance for everybody to get the shot, but there wasn't at all. It was never going to happen, yet it was still like a zoo. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird how people get super locked in to a particular composition or a very specific photo that they want to get. And Yeah, and then- it's, I think that's... It's fine when it's your composition, but when it's just one you've seen on Instagram and you want to go and copy it, oh, it's just not not a good way to do it. Have you seen, what's that canyon, uh, that famous slot canyon with the shaft of light coming down? And, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. I saw a video on uh, YouTube by F-Stoppers, and they showed how to get that photograph, and it's horrendous. It's so far from photography. I mean, it is photography, of course, but you know, you, you have to – pay for a photographer's permit, you get cattled in with about 10 other photographers, maybe even 20 other photographers, the, the wardens or the guides or whoever tell you where to put your cameras, and then they grab the sand and they throw the sand in the air so you get the shaft of light and they tell everybody, shoot, 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 and you're all lined up, all taking the same, oh, my God, it's just, what? honestly, I, uh, I Dude, don't know. going to... I'm with you, man. Like, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, you know, it's to me, like, that is not, uh, at least for, for me and my personal, like where I'm at right now, that's not landscape photography. Like that's, that's like, uh, being like trophy, it's like trophy hunting. (laughs) It is like trophy hunting, like with a, it's worse than trophy hunting in some ways. It's like, uh, you know, you, you think about, um, like if you think about going to like a game preserve and they hand you the rifle and they tell you where to point the gun and then they like they herd the the deer or the elk out in front of you and then they like tell you they count down to five and then i mean it's like literally it's like photography by like paint by numbers it's like the weirdest i don't I mean, I think people think it's fun, obviously, or they wouldn't be doing it. But I personally just don't see the appeal in it at all. No, I think it's. I think it's. It probably is is good for a beginner because they're going to get an awesome shot that they're really proud of that they can show friends and family. But other than that, um, I don't know. I'd like to go and walk through the canyon myself and see it, but not necessarily not necessarily photograph it. I don't, I don't know. It's it's a it's a bizarre kind of juxtaposition where you know you, you, you're torn between wanting this awesome image but you're not really creating the image you're just being gifted it 
Yeah. It's a funny one. It's an interesting topic that I'm sure we could talk about and it's been debated for hours and hours and hours. And we've all done it. I've done it. I've shot the icons. I still will happily shoot an icon. But if I turn up to a location and, you know, there's 20 tripods, I'll just not. I'll turn around and go. Yeah. Go somewhere else. Well, last, uh, this past March, I went to Iceland and, of course, I had to go to, uh, you know, all the. I didn't have to, but the group I was with, you know, we kind of had a plan and, you know, we went to Kirk Jafel and, you know, I think we were the very first people up there before sunrise and, you know, same, same as experience you had, like it really wasn't that great of a sunrise. So like I took maybe one photo from like the classic spot with the waterfalls to the left and all of that. And, and then I was like, well, this is, dumb so i you know i just started wandering around and getting different shots and different perspectives and you know like that to me like that's fun like exploring a place and trying to find something that interests you that's not something you've seen i think that's that's what landscape photography is about you know it's it's exploration and using your your creative mind and and creating something you know yeah i mean i was in iceland with a workshop a couple of weeks ago and we didn't go to any locations that were just a viewpoint everywhere we went to. Because we knew, you know, Iceland's popular, it's busy, there's lots of photographers and, and tourists there. And we knew that this was going to be the case. So just one way around it is to go to the locations that are very popular, like the Glacial Beach. Um, but it's encouraging people to explore and try and shoot things differently and see things differently. Um but yeah, we didn't go to Kirkjifjiga. <laughs> I can't pronounce it. We didn't go to the cone-shaped mountain, although we have been there in the past. Um, yeah, I like to go to places where the groups scatter for miles, um, all doing their own thing. It's fantastic to watch. And that's one thing we always try and teach on our workshops um, is to usually we'll set the challenge of, okay, get the big wide shot that tells you exactly you know that, that, that depicts the scene but try and get a second shot that's by looking at it you can't see where it was photographed um, yeah. i think that's always a good challenge yeah i don't know about you but uh the longer i get into landscapes like the more and more i get into like smaller intimate more abstract scenes that you don't really know where the photo was taken it's uh um, you know, you rely much more on patterns and composition and, and just, you know, I think it's, it's a lot more challenging and, and I think the end result is often a lot more interesting. Um, yeah, it's rewarding as well. It's difficult for people to replicate because there are a lot of copycats out there who will see you take an image and then they'll send you an email saying, oh, where was that taken? Yeah. Oh, I get emails quite a lot saying, where exactly, where exactly was that taken? Can I have the GPS coordinates? I'm like, no, <laughs> not because it's, I don't want it, not because I want it to be my secret spot, but you know, you, you have to work for these things yourself. Yeah. I literally, um, I had a photo on Instagram. I put up, uh, I think yesterday and literally, um, someone messaged me on Instagram and said, Hey, I live in this town really close to where you took that. I'm pretty sure any chance you could share the exact GPS coordinates, I'd be forever grateful. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I was like, uh, I don't share locations for photos because I don't want them to be trampled. I've seen it happen with a few spots in Colorado, and I don't want to see it happen again. So have you have you I mean, you've been in the game for quite a while, like, what impacts have you seen on locations that are maybe directly related to 
um, either location sharing or geotagging or just people trying to copycat? Like, what is your sense yeah, of all that? Oh, I think it's a terrible problem. Um, we're all guilty of it. Uh, you know, Absolutely. You're as guilty as I am. Um, so I... Um, I, I, you, when my channel was smaller, I was never aware of the problem and the, the impact that I had. So I would go and shoot something and I will happily say where I am and I'll show a signpost and I'll show where my car's parked. And I quickly really realized that this is a bad practice, bad practice, because not only it, it annoys the local photographers who all of a sudden see their local spot being trampled all over, but it's bad for the environment. And people just copy. So I, when I'm somewhere incredibly obvious, then I don't mind, you know, then I'll say, you know, I'm on top of this mountain, for example, because everyone knows where I am. So it's not a problem. But when I'm in an intimate woodland or a valley or a, a, an obscure small waterfall or anything like that, I never, ever say, I say generally where I am. So, you know, I might say I'm in such and such national park, but that's all I give away because I've seen it happen there's a place where I shoot in the Lake District National Park and I filmed a couple of videos in, in this location um, and I had really good conditions one morning, beautiful mist, really nice light. Uh, and I made the mistake of saying where I was. You know, I didn't show, you know, I didn't give directions or anything like that. I just said the name of the hill that I was on or the name of the mountain. And now it's just, you know, there's car parks full all the time with photography it's incredibly popular with photographers all the time and you know it used to be only this time last year that it would be nobody would ever shoot there um and you could have the whole place to yourself whereas now it's just it's almost become one of those you must shoot locations when you're in the national park and i think that's down to possibly me and a couple of other guys who've made that location popular and i think that's a shame um so no i'm very very careful now um, yeah. very careful indeed yeah it's interesting I, i've seen i've seen this topic uh, uh gain some i guess gain some attention over the last couple of months i think uh f stoppers had an article about it petapixel had an article about it i think i've seen a couple of the big magazines put out some articles about it and of course inevitably every single time there's like maybe 20 30 percent of the commenters <clears throat> who think it's all about um people being selfish like oh you can go there but i can't and i think unfortunately i feel like those people um they don't understand like what we're trying to say here it's not about like i can go there but you can't it's about look we can't there's no way for any of us to guarantee that if i share the location of this this place or this image that the people seeing that are going to have the same ethics that I have in terms of preserving a place or whatever. And not only that, but like you could have a thousand people with the most amazing ethics and the most amazing leave no trace mentality. But just the sheer fact that there's a thousand of those people going to that place, it's going to have an effect. Yeah, totally. And yeah, the problem is, you know, people, there's a lot of people who may have these ethics around other people but when they're out there by themselves you know you hear stories all the time of people just uh, take a i heard a, a story of a, a photographer who photographed some bluebells in this popular location a really nice arrangement of bluebells and then he 
got the image and then he trampled all over the bluebells so that nobody else could get the shot. Whoa. <laughs> and I just thought, I know, it's, it's, it's that kind of mentality. Um, and yeah, generally people, I mean, most people do respect the environment, but I reckon a lot don't. Um, and I also think if, if you really want to know where a location is, you can work it out, you know, a bit of research and a bit of, intuition and you can easily find where a location is um and then by finding a location that way then far fewer people are actually going to go to the effort of doing that and the people that do go to the effort of doing that they're going to be well more likely to be good people rather than just the lazy photographers who couldn't care less about walking across some protected moss or trampling on small flowers or you know snapping a small sapling because it's in the way of their composition. Yeah, I know. Well, obviously, if you go through the work of trying to find a place, you know, like you say, it it, it makes it to where it's a little bit more special for you in your mind. Oh yeah, without a doubt. And then we did a yeah. I'm sorry. Go oh, on. and I was just gonna say, and then of course you're gonna be a little bit more protective of that place, and you're gonna be less likely to. Just be like, well, here's what, here's where it's at. Have at it. You know, like, I feel like ah, it's weird. I don't, I, I just really struggle with this one because I feel like there's a lot of people out there that they're probably really smart, really nice, really well thoughtful people, but they still just don't understand why there's a growing movement of people that don't want people to share locations. Yeah. No, they did. A lot of people think it's selfish, but it's it's not at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was in Iceland and we had a, a guide to take us to an ice cave and it was a brand new ice cave. So we were the first people to visit it. And we made the suggestion that everybody turn off GPS on their cameras and on their phones because all it takes is one image of the ice cave with the GPS coordinates, you know, pinned to Google Maps and before you know it, the ice cave will be overrun because there's a, another ice cave in Iceland that's quite accessible. And he's even been given a name. I can't remember the name, something like Diamond Twinkling Cave or something stupid like that. <laughs> and uh, it used to be a beautiful ice cave that you could go and photograph. And you can't do that now because the ice cave is never, ever empty. It's just there's 70 people in there at one time all day, every day. So the ice cave guides, the photography guides have had to, you know, they've been forced out of that ice cave and they have to go out and find new ice caves further afield that are less populated. So when they find a good one, you know, they ask everybody to turn off GPS and not reveal the location because they don't want busloads of people turning up and, you know, scratching their name in the ice or whatever it is they do. Yeah. It's, um, like you say, like it's, um, I feel like, I don't know, there was a couple of years ago, um, a couple of photographers that I'm friends with here in the States tried to get a movement started around getting people more aware of this. And they sent it out to uh, a handful of professional photographers who lead a lot of workshops and things like that. And they got a lot of resistance um, from the kind of more established landscape photographers you know the the uh, the overwhelming kind of response they got back was uh you know this isn't uh this isn't the fault of photographers this isn't the fault of workshop leaders this is this is tourists this is um whatever it's a uh, tour bus is full of people and i think what i don't know i think what they fail to make the connection to is that 
while they're while what they're saying is true, those are the people that are showing up in masses. They're inspired by the photographs that those of us that are really good at taking photos are taking and sharing with the world. <laughs> yeah, it's a bizarre one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a dilemma, that's for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I don't suggest that we stop sharing our photos with the world, but I think we can do it in a more thoughtful way. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. It really annoys me when I take a photograph um, on YouTube and uh, in the comments, somebody recognizes the location <laughs> and then they'll post a comment saying, oh yeah, great. This is such and such a woodland near such and such. I'm like, ah, no. <laughs> Do you delete those comments? And I always have to yeah, I delete those comments. Well, good for you. Not man. because I want it to myself. I just don't. I, I'm not kidding. If I, if I go to a, if I have a success, I had a really nice photo shoot in my last video and it was at this lovely woodland um, in the Peak District. And if I'd have said where that which woodland I was at, I, I, I promise you that it would be inundated over the next two weeks with photographers, yeah. like hundreds of them. And that's not me being arrogant in any kind of way. I've seen it happen. I remember, I remember once, this is a really funny story. This was before YouTube. I was There's a lighthouse near me, very nice lighthouse, uh, quite popular with photographers, always has been. And a few years ago, we had the Northern Lights up here, and that's quite rare because we're fairly far south. Uh-huh. Um, but it was, well, it was, I think it was in 2013 when the Northern Lights were really, really active all year. And uh, there was this forecast of the Northern Lights, and I thought, oh, wow, look at this. It's like KP9. It was going to reach all <laughs> the way down Europe. I thought, fantastic. Let's go out and shoot the Northern Lights. This was probably four or five years ago. And I got my camera, got my tripod. I thought, right, where am I going to go? I thought, oh, I'll go to the lighthouse. It's north-facing. It's dark. It's going to be perfect. So I went to the lighthouse and I photographed the Northern Lights over this beautiful lighthouse. I was the only photographer there. It was freezing cold about two o'clock in the morning. And I just got these awesome images and I was so happy. It was so rare and so unusual. So the next day, it was all over the news that the Northern Lights were seen across the UK and London and and all this sort of stuff. Um, So naturally, being an amateur photographer, I was like, oh, I've got some nice Northern Lights pictures. So I sent my pictures into the news. And my images of the lighthouse with the Northern Lights made national news, national news. The BBC national news showed all of my images. They ran a story on it. And this was the day after I photographed it. That night, so the second night, you know, it was all this media buzz about the Northern Lights. There, you know, everybody, all the newspapers and all their websites are saying the Northern Lights are going to be on, you know, they're going to explode tonight and you should go out and see them. There was news articles and everything. So the night after I'd been to the lighthouse photographing the Northern Lights, um, hundreds of people turned up at the lighthouse because they'd seen my images on the news. And I'm not kidding, hundreds, so much so that the police had to turn up and close the road because it's a single track lane down to the lighthouse and all the cars had gone down the lane and then the car park had filled up and then no more cars could turn around and get out. So it became blocked in by vehicles. Um, and then the traffic started backing all the way down the main road. Um, so two or three police cars with the sirens had to come and direct traffic away. And it was pandemonium. And there wasn't even any Northern Lights that night. And I remember stood there watching this chaos thinking, I did that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was me. And it was. And it's not because my images were so good or anything like that. It's because... My images were shown on the news. Everybody 
in the region where I live obviously thought this is the place to go and see them. It was on the news, let's go. And the whole seafront had to be closed down. And that was, that was in a way, a really proud moment. <laughs> but that's the damage it can do. And if you think now how many people watch my videos is probably a similar number to how many people would watch the local, you know, who would be watching the news in my local area. So it's, it's a very not too dissimilar impact. Yeah if I share a good location. So. Well, lo location, I mean, obviously, I think as landscape photographers, we all know, like location is almost everything in terms of, you know, positioning and light and direction of light and subject and all that. So like, I feel like it's super important that we be mindful that location matters and, and sharing that location, you know, it, yeah, I think just think about like, what is going to happen? if I share this like to the news or if I make a huge Instagram post about this spot and tell people how to get there. And like, I've seen it. There's a, um, I had a similar thing happen to me here in Colorado. There's a, there's a really, I mean, everyone knows about it now, but it, there's a really popular lake uh, here in between uh, what's well, over by Silverton. And a lot of people uh, hike up there in the, in the early summer months to do shoot wildflowers and things like that. And I would say over the last probably 10 years, it's gone from kind of like a secret, like maybe five, six people a year would kind of go up there to enjoy it. And now it's like any given weekend, there's hundreds and hundreds of people that backpack up there. And we're talking like high Alpine tundra. And so every time I see people, um, post photos of that location on Instagram, I tell them like, Hey, did you know that the forest service is probably going to like create a permitting system to prevent people from coming up here? Like it's like this place cannot take more traffic, you know, it just can't handle it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, uh, it's a shame, but that's the thing though, isn't it? Outdoors is more popular now. People want to go to these places that they see on the internet yeah. and it's very easy to find these places as well. Yeah. So, difficult one it is a tough one um well i wanted to uh shift gears a little bit um one of the things i kind of wanted to touch on a little bit it's it's a little bit related but uh uh one of the topics that comes up quite a bit over on our um, facebook page uh for the podcast is um kind of the constant shifting of social media and like how to use it like a lot of you know, Facebook constantly is changing their algorithms. And like, I, I saw that your Facebook just deleted your page and said you died. Oh, I was yeah. curious, like how that even happened. But um, I guess, like, what would you say to people about, um, like, what's the best use of social media? And how do you, in, how do you maintain uh, high engagement on different platforms? Like, what's the, how do you see that working best for you at, in your photography? Oh man, uh, I don't know. I think you're asking the wrong person. I'm I'm terrible at social media. Um, I honestly don't know. I mean, I uh, Instagram's a funny one for me because I have quite a big following on Instagram, but I very rarely post anything. Maybe once a month, uh, once every three weeks, I'll post an image. I use it for stories quite a lot because I think that's quite a, a good way to get engagement. Um, but no, I I don't understand nor listen to the changes in algorithm i don't have any kind of strategy in terms of when i 
post images or hashtags or anything. I don't reply to comments, not because I'm, uh, I'm rude or anything, just because I get so, so many comments and messages, I can't reply to them. So I kind of have a policy where I only reply to emails uh, because that takes a bit more effort for people to write. Um, so uh, I don't know. I think the only social media that I really use prominently is YouTube, which is a form of social media. Um, Facebook, I don't use anymore. Um, really, you know, very, very rarely do I use Facebook, which is probably why they killed me off. I'm <laughs> not sure. Um, Twitter, um, I don't like Twitter really. I find it's uh, it's too easy for people to uh, make direct contact with you. Not not in a not in a uh, in a bad way, but you know, uh, people who don't like you or don't like something you've said or don't like something you've done, they'll, you know, it's too easy for them to attack you on Twitter. Um, so there's, I find that generally on Twitter, there's more negativity than on Instagram and certainly on YouTube. So yeah, I don't use Twitter too often. Um, I don't use Instagram all that often apart from stories. So I can't give any advice. Um, I would say be consistent and interact you know, it's, I know for a fact it's all about engagement, so you have to reply to comments and comment on other people's work. Try and be original with the content that you do post as well and try and look to do work outside of social media so you could write a blog or start a podcast or something like that and then you kind of link your blog or podcast to your social media and vice versa. Um, I had a guy email me not too long ago wanting to know how to become successful on social media, he said that his photography was amazing, <laughs> but he was struggling with social media. <laughs> I thought, okay. And his, to be fair, his photography was very good. And he said he's opened an Instagram account last week, <laughs> but it wasn't very successful. And I thought, oh, come on, a week and you're expecting to what, get a, a million followers and all this engagement. Yeah, that's So, you know, it takes time. It, no, no, it takes, it takes a long time. And uh, I would say reach out to people with big followings so engage them on social media and you know they might respond or they might share your work and that's generally how to, i'd say don't for the life of you mean you know whatever you do do not purchase any kind of likes or don't use any kind of bots because it's just bad uh, <laughs> it doesn't work uh, it blows my mind that people buy likes um i don't understand why they would do that uh, so yeah, I had a company reach out, reach out to me. I don't know. It was probably a year ago that they like, and it wasn't like a fly by night, like Chinese company. It was like, they were, you know, they were, they've been around for a while and, and they basically, you hire them to basically manage your Instagram account and like they have algorithms and they post content and use hashtags and blah, blah, blah. And it, you know, it sounded all good and all that. And then I, the more I started digging, I'm like, well, show me. Like, give me some examples of people you work with. And, you know, I look at their accounts and, like, they follow, like, you know, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 people. Uh, the accounts that, you know, the people that they're managing accounts for, that's their strategy is, like, to follow and unfollow and then comment on a lot of people's stuff. And I'm like, that's not, like, genuine engagement. That's 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 just gaming the system and it's not really real. So, I, I don't know. I think my advice would be just just be real and like be yourself and don't, you know, don't try to game it, you know? Yeah, I, I always think social media should support something else that, that you do. Um, so some people might try and 
make it just as an Instagrammer so they'll only post photos to Instagram. But I think you need to give more than that. I think you need to have projects outside of social media um, and then use social media to support those projects. That's probably the best way to gain a following. Um, but yeah, you've got to put in the work and just engage and be interested and show interest in other people's work. Yeah, just having good work is not enough to be popular. <laughs> No, because no, there's too many people going to all these iconic viewpoints and <laughs> getting get these great images. Um, so, yeah, it, is, it isn't enough. You, you need to have more substance. Yeah. Cool. So um, shifting gears a little bit, um, this, is, this is a rare uh, <laughs> time where I'm going to ask you more about gear because I was just curious. <laughs> um, Okay. I, I noticed you'd use a lot of grad filters and, uh, you know, most of the people I talk to nowadays, like they don't like using filters anymore, except for the occasional, you know, polarizer for very specific applications. Um, I'm curious what it is about using grad filters and things like that, that still keeps you using them. Uh, for me, it's the, it's the craft side of it. So, um, I, uh, I've tried or I'm, currently learning the whole kind of luminosity mask exposure blending thing and i've got to say i don't love it <laughs> i've had to play with some panels and i lose patience very quickly whereas when i'm in the field i feel like i can build an image from scratch so i start with finding the subject and the composition and then i'll manage my exposure by placing in a grad and i can see it there and then the um the instant change and holding everything together in one exposure and granted, it doesn't always work, um, so therefore I will bracket. But I like the it's the thought of building something out in hmm. the field okay. um, using all the tools to do that. And I, I honestly don't think that it degrades the image in any way, shape, or form, especially not with the new modern filters. They're, they're so perfectly clear and sharp that it's you can you know unless they're covered in fingerprints, then it's perfectly fine. So. Yeah, it's more difficult when you shoot trees and in deep canyon valleys and things like that. But um, for the most part, uh, I just love the, the the process of yeah, completely building an image in the camera, and then the craft of picking the right filter and placing it and seeing the image come alive in front of your eyes. Um, I just don't have much patience for sitting at a computer, um, and I've tried. <laughs> Honestly, I've tried, and it's just. You know, as soon as I get to three or four layers in Photoshop and then I've got all these different masks are going on, I get lost and I just think, what? And some of the best images for me are those that are just taken in a single exposure. You open them in Lightroom, you need a tweak here and a tweak yeah. there, and then it's done. And that is, for me, what photography is about. It's about finding those moments in nature of light and subject and, and composition rather than capturing all of the elements and then building it afterwards in software and there's nothing wrong with that i admire massively those who are who can create these fantastic digital images uh, well not digital images these you know, who can build these images from various exposures and and it's it's very very much of an art form but for me my patience and aptitude lies out in the field so anything that can help me out in the field then i will do it but that's not to take anything away from exposure blending at all sure um, it's just i'm always happier dropping in a filter than i am exposing two or three images yeah i guess my only uh i i i'm i actually am somewhat similar at least historically but this the last photo outing i did i was using uh, a circular polarizer 
And, um, you know, I was showing him to one of my buddies who I really respect. And, and he was like, did you, did you shoot that with a polarizer? I'm like, yeah. He's like, man. And then the the problem is like, it's destructive to the file. Like you can't take it, can't take it back. You know, you can't undo what the filter has done to the file. So to me, like that's the only downside. Yeah. But that's, that's a bad mindset to have. Um, Because also placing your tripod in the wrong position is destructive to the file. If you don't think about your composition, oh, absolutely, <laughs> you can't undo that. So uh, it's the same with the polarizer. Uh, it's only destructive in the way that it changes an image. It's no more destructive than deciding to place your tripod left or right of a tree or left or right of a boulder or whatever. Um, apart from when you have blue skies, if you make that mistake. Um, but generally speaking, um, I would argue against that negative and say it's all about how and when you choose to use a polarizer. Right. Well, it's definitely something that you shouldn't use in every single photo. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely not. No, God. If you use a polarizer on a blue sky day, just forget about it. Unless you're shooting at like 150 mil and you're in the mountains, then that works quite well. But I've seen people polarize a blue sky with a 24 mil lens and it just looks terrible. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm um, guilty of that. Not recently, but early in my photography, I did a lot oh, of Oh, yeah, that's how you learn. I've done it, I've done it loads of times. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you just learn from that. But I think to say that it's destructive, you know, it's no more destructive than choosing a lens, one lens over another lens, if you think about it that way. Yeah. Um, or, you know, choosing one camera body over another camera body could then be considered destructive because you can't take that back you know some yeah i don't know I, i'm just thinking like if you decide to shoot something with a crop sensor when you could have shot it with a medium format sensor then is that then destructive to the file because you in theory can't take that back you can't add those pixels i don't know um yeah i think just the word destructive is a little bit too strong well i mean it is true that like you can't undo what the filter did <laughs> no no absolutely you can't undo what the filter did but hopefully if you're paying attention then you'll realize you'll u- use the filter in the correct way right. and it will uh yeah it will enhance the image rather than you know make it worse right so what, so what i'm hearing you say is that i i just use the filter in the wrong way <laughs> i'm just kidding i have no idea maybe it is true <laughs> Uh, well, cool, man. So I guess I only just have um, uh, one more question, uh, which is, uh, who do you think would be cool to have on the podcast? Well, I've been thinking about this. Um, so I <laughs> I was at a conference, a landscape photography conference in uh, Moab in Utah. It's the same one where I went to um, Mesa Arch. And there were, I met another instructor there um, called Gavin Hardcastle. And he's a uh, landscape photographer based on Vancouver Island. Uh, but he's from the UK. He lives, or he's from not too far from where I live. And he's got a YouTube channel as well, or he's just started one. And um, I've started watching his content, and it is the funniest content on YouTube. He's somehow managed to merge landscape photography with belly laugh humor. So. <laughs> Yeah, you need to get him on your podcast because your listeners will not stop laughing, I promise you. Um, and his images are ex- excellent as well. He's kind of got that he's got that talent whereby he can switch on and off. So one minute he'll be talking about a fantastic image and how he shot it, and then the next minute he'll be just on the floor in tears of laughter. And I noticed when I signed up for your podcast, there was a box 
that I had to tick to say whether or not uh, I could was happy to include profanities. Um, and I ticked no, but I guarantee that Gavin will tick yes. So, <laughs> All right. On the show. And uh, yeah, he's hilarious. Yeah, I think I recently saw he was running around with Adam Gibbs, who we yes, had. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I've been, I've been following Gavin on, I think, Flickr for probably four or five years now. Like, um, he's got really, he's got some really great images. So that's a yes, awesome yeah, he's fantastic. Cool. But you should check out his YouTube channel because you'll be laughing hard. <laughs> I will. You know, you YouTubers are going to make me start uh, listening to YouTube more, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> no, absolutely not. It's great. It's the, it's the best platform out there, apart from your podcast, of course. Oh, right, right. Of course. <laughs> well, dude, thank you so much. This has been really fun. And uh, I feel like we covered a lot of ground. And it's it's just been a real pleasure to to talk to you on the podcast, dude. Yeah, good. I've enjoyed it. What time? Oh my god, we've been going for an hour and twenty-three minutes, so that's flown by. So it's been, uh, it's been nice. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. So awesome, dude. Well, thanks again. Ah, well, thanks to Thomas for taking the time to visit with me on the podcast. I really appreciate it, dude. I hope you learned as much as I did. Uh, be sure to check out our extended conversation over on Patreon. Just search for F Stop, collaborate, and listen at Patreon.com. A uh, special thanks to our newest patrons, Jeremy Gerritsen, Sam Manavis, and Jared Hills. Thank you guys so much. You guys are awesome. Um, well, it's that time again. Um, I really, really, really am excited to push the podcast to the next level. Um, we're getting really close to being able to provide a $1,000 uh, landscape photography award um, to somebody in the landscape photography community that is um, pushing pushing the boundaries on conservation issues through their photography. And I'm only going to be able to do that with your help over on Patreon. Um, so thanks for everyone. I just I have a question for you. What is the podcast worth to you? Um, I don't charge anything to listen. Um, I All the money that uh, supports the podcast comes through Patreon. So I don't know. Just consider that when you listen. Is it worth a dollar, uh, $5, $10? Um, just think about it. Um, another way to help us out is to write us a five-star review over on iTunes. It really does help. Um, thanks for everyone who's been doing that. Super appreciate that. Um, and then one final announcement uh, that uh, I thought would be worth mentioning to everyone. I am currently in the process of uh, building a new website uh, using Jack Brower's platform uh, through wide range galleries. Um, so far, I've really enjoyed the one-to-one -one attention that Jack, Jack gives you through the process. And the back end of the system is super slick. So if you're looking to build a photography website to sell your work, I highly recommend it. If you do use Jack's service, uh, please let him know you heard about it from the podcast. I really appreciate that. Um, if you want to leave comments about the episode, head over to the liner notes on my blog at mattpainphotography.com. And of course, you can uh, always follow us on the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that fun stuff. Matt Payne Photo, Matt Payne Photography, or just search for F-Stop, collaborate, and listen. Well, that's another week, another episode, and thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week when we'll be speaking with uh, Scott McCook from Western Australia. Really excited for that one. See you then.